Starfleet is not a military organization. Its purpose is exploration. That's the diplomat in you talking. What does the soldier say? Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 15 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm joined by Mike Lacroix of the Canadian Military History Podcast, and who better to discuss whether or not Starfleet is a military organization and how it compares to the actual military. How are you, Mike? I'm fantastic. How's things with you? Great. And you're part of the uh, of Canada's uh, Armed Forces? That's right. I'm a member of Canada's Army Reserve. That's right. So infantry captain in the Toronto Scottish Regiment, is that is that still actual or is that... Um... Yep, that's that's actu- actual. So I started off as a private in 1988. And then from there, I went through the ranks until I became the rank of chief warrant officer. Uh, that might not be familiar to any of our U.S. Uh, listeners, but that's uh, Canadian rank. It's the highest you can become within a unit. And from there, uh, when I was a chief warrant officer, I was appointed as the regimental sergeant major. So I was the number one advisor to the commanding officer on issues of drill, discipline, development, and dress. So those were basically my primary duties. I made sure that the sergeants and warrant officers within the regiment maintained a specific standard of conduct a specific standard of dress, and that they were making sure that their soldiers were being trained properly for whatever mission the SEAL would assign them. So no Deanna Troy bunny suits no, in your that's unit. Right. <laughs> that's right. But we do have we do have Canadian Forces chaplains that fulfill that same role, and I'm sure we'll be able to have an opportunity to talk about that. After being the RSM of the Toronto Scottish, I deployed to Africa, where I was the task force sergeant major of a task force known as IMAT, the International Military Advisory and Training Team. And that was a British Army-led mission with Canadian support. There were Canadians, Nigerians, Jamaicans, Ghana, and the United States were all a multinational task force. When I came back, I became the Brigade Sergeant Major of 32 Canadian Brigade Group, which is basically the Army in Toronto. At the time I started, it included Simcoe and Gray Counties in Ontario. It included, oh, it still does include Peel Region, and we traded our northern part for the Niagara region. Then when my term was up as the uh, brigade sergeant major, I became, I commissioned, I commissioned, I became a captain in the army reserve. And from there I returned to the Toronto Scottish regiment after briefly spending some time with a unit known as the grand Simcoe foresters near my home in Barrie. That's basically what I've done so far. Currently I'm on a course called the army operations course where I will be learning the skills necessary for large-scale planning in order to become a major in the Canadian Forces. So you are an expert on this topic. I, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trespass a little bit into the Navy and maybe touch a little bit into Air Force, which is not quite my area of expertise. 
So hopefully any uh, Navy listeners and Air Force listeners will forgive some of my comments that I make if I do happen to stray. Uh, leave your comments in the comments section and direct all your email towards Ciscoid. <laughs> yeah, it's all my fault. Uh, <laughs> if you've got your own expertise, please, uh, you know, throw in uh, by the end of the show. So that's your military cred, unimpeachable. But uh, what about your Star Trek cred? So as with everyone else that's been on the show, uh, you've got to take the Trek test. Yeah, okay. We begin as we always do by asking, what does Trek mean to you? How did you get into Trek and what importance does it have in your life? I started with uh, Star Trek on a small black and white TV in my apartment. It was my mother's apartment. It wasn't mine. I didn't pay the rent. <laughs> and surprisingly, uh, the first episode I can recall ever seeing is The Man Trap, which is the first episode that aired. However, that was definitely not 1966 because I, I was born two years after. But I remember being freaked out by the salt vampire and the whole business of uh, Nancy Crater and the salt vampire and the buffaloes. I always remember the statement about the buffaloes. I don't know buffaloes that would cover states. And whenever I think of that episode, I always remember the comment about the buffaloes for some reason. Anyhow, anytime Star Trek would come on in Mississauga, where I grew up, we had a U.S. station called Channel 29. They eventually got taken over by Fox, but we would watch Star Trek anytime it came on. Then when the when Star Trek went to the movies, I wasn't really in a position to go to the movies simply financially. They didn't have the disposable income to go to the movies. But I remember vividly watching Ratha Khan in Kmart when they were trying to sell uh, widescreen TVs, not widescreen TVs that we're used to today, but the rear projection type with the three light bulbs, widescreen TVs. And I would go to the local mall just to look at the TVs to see if they were playing Star Trek. And inevitably, they were playing um, Rathacon at the time. So through little bits and pieces, I watched the entire Rathacon just in the store. And then I realized, I can't remember if I was reading a magazine or something, or if someone told me, I realized that Ratha Khan was linked to an episode of Star Trek. So I found it. And then my brother and I, we rented a VCR and we rented both Space Seed and the Ratha Khan, took them home and hooked everything up and watched them. And then we took them, took it all back. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, the motion picture I didn't get to see for a while. Uh, Star Trek three, I'm sure I watched on VHS. And, and then I think after four, I had enough disposable income to go see Star Trek in the theaters, and I've watched every every movie in in the theaters from that point forward. Then the next thing that happens is the next generation comes out. So my pals and I, we all got together. Uh, this is right before I joined the military. So we watched the opening, the first episode, Encounter at Farpoint. We all know that. Yeah, just uh, stayed with Next Gen throughout. I remember I was at a place on a weekend exercise in a Canadian Forces base known as Meaford, and we were assigned to work the day of the final episode of Next Generation. So we didn't have a way to watch it up there because there was no place to watch TV or watch a TV episode in Meaford at the time. It wasn't as developed as it is now. So we decided to go to the local armory, which just happened to be the Grand Simcoe Foresters in Owen Sound, and we knocked on the door to see if anybody was there to see if we could watch their TV. And it turns out that they were also set up to watch the last episode of Next Gen. So we just joined them. Basically, people that just showed up for the party 
uninvited and they, they had already had something planned. So we watched it with the, with the foresters and, uh, they're all good people. They let us in. They enjoyed our company. We enjoyed their company. We watched the final episode. That's my secret origin of Star Trek. I mean, I could keep going on about every series and every episode, but I, I, don't think that's really what the listeners want to hear. That begs the question, is uh, Star Trek popular with uh, armed forces? I think so. Or was it just, you know, the TNG f- uh, fervor at the time? Looking at Facebook, and when, when there is something that comes out and the amount of people that I know that I have in my own military circles that comment on Star Trek and have Star Trek themes or, or they recognize symbols. Like in my military office, I have a, a very poorly made batleth, but... When I changed offices, I had put it away in my garage. And then when I came back to a different office, people were coming in. They're like, where's the batleth? How come you don't have that anymore? So I had to go to the garage, dig it out, clean all the rust off of it, put it back because people expected it to be there. I got my three-dimensional chess set that people like to rearrange on me when I'm not looking. I mean, I, I think that military people, without generalizing, I think military people are into Star Trek. Okay. Here are the last three questions of the, our little survey. What is your favorite iteration of the show? Well, it has to be the original series. I mean, not, not just because that's where it all began. It's just that's where a lot of the good drama was. I mean, there was drama in Next Gen, and, and I do see Next Gen as my close second. But when Voyager came out, I, I saw it very much like Gilligan's Island. Like, they're always trying to solve the puzzle on how to get off the island and I enjoyed Voyager, but it was always that, how do we get home? Oh, are we going to get home this episode? Well, clearly not. It's like episode four of season one. How are you getting home today? Like it doesn't make sense. So it doesn't, the drama is always a little bit suspended because they're not going to solve the puzzle in the first season. And then the original series is really where, how could I say that? That's where the foundation of Star Trek was laid. That's where people, started to appreciate it through the syndication. That's where Star Trek was reborn after being canceled was through syndication. I just like the characters. I like the way they work together on screen, regardless of what they, how they don't work together in their personal lives. That has nothing to do with me. Uh, so I can't really comment on that, but the way they interact together, the way they are pals on screen, the way that they would give up everything for each other. That was just a magical combination, the original series. And who is your favorite character, either from that iteration or any iteration, really? It has to be Captain Kirk. And I'm talking about William Shatner's Captain Kirk. There's a way to watch Star Trek. And if you want to watch green women and promiscuity, you might find it there. That's the way people typically look at Captain Kirk. But I don't see it that way. If you pay attention to the story, you're going to learn that he served on the Farragut in phaser control. He did planetary surveys. He plays chess against the toughest opponents. He survived Kodos the Executioner. He can make technical repairs because he was part of the damage control team on the Constellation. He wasn't there just to, to lead people and look tough. He was there to fix things. Um, he didn't need someone to reprogram the Kobayashi Maru for him. He was technically proficient enough to do that himself. And then he became the youngest starship captain at his time. But he earned that. He earned that captaincy. I mean, I like to think that when Gary Mitchell says, that little blonde lab assistant, you almost married her. I like to think that that's Carol Marcus, mm-hmm. because it, it's, it fits the narrative, the background of what we hear. I mean, I really 
don't want to start assassinating Star Trek, J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek. But that Captain Kirk did not earn his captaincy. He did not teach at the Academy. So many things are missing from that characterization of Captain Kirk that it didn't earn it, that Chris Pine didn't earn the same ability to lead that ship as uh, the previous version of Captain Kirk. And, and that's, that is why Captain Kirk stands as the favorite for me. All right. And who, what is your favorite uh, Star Trek species? See, now I'm going to cheat. Okay. Because I'm going to say the Vulcans, simply because Spock is also one of my favorites. So I knew this question was coming, so I didn't have to talk about Spock. But um, <laughs> So by saying the Vulcans, I get to have both my favorites at the same time. So Spock being the logic, the, the best pal of Captain Kirk, the two being inseparable, the mysticism... The whole mystique of it, the Ponfar, the Kolinar, the Katra, all that kind of mysticism, the relationship with his father, the relationship with his mother, the fact that he had a tough childhood growing up, which you would find it's quite difficult to have a person from a race that apparently is so based in logic to face a childhood where they suffer a lot of teasing doesn't really seem to flow that a logical race of people would subject somebody to teasing. But anyhow, that's part of the narrative. We got accepted. It's, it's, uh, part of the story, part of the background. But yeah, it's, it, it's my second, my favorite's got to be the Vulcans, uh, as a species. Fair enough. Let's, let's just get into this. All right. The big question, the question everybody asks, the one that people like to debate. Is Starfleet a military organization? Is it? It could be many things, but is it NASA? And basically, you bring your ground crew with you uh, aboard the ship. It's, is it NASA or is it the, the Royal Navy? Exactly. So what's your take on this? Well, if we look at what's on screen and take it at face value, when Kirk is talking to the Organian minister, he says, I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. So he's admitting to belonging to a military force, even though Kirk does have quite a bit of talent being a diplomat. And when we in the military are deployed on small missions, like my own small mission in Sierra Leone, we do have to have some talent as a diplomat. So our earliest reference that we can point to is with Kirk facing off with the Arganian minister telling him he's a soldier. If we fast forward to Next Generation, in the episode Peak Performance, Picard says Starfleet is not a military organization. Our purpose is exploration. So that kind of misleads or betrays the previous statement from Kirk. So we have, if, if we're going to have a scoreboard here, we got one for and one against. When we look at Star Trek Discovery in the episode Vulcan Hello, Captain Georgiou says, I have to hope that whatever happens here can serve as a bridge between our civilizations. So then Michael Burnham says, that's the diplomat in you talking. What does the soldier say? And then Georgiou responds, nothing good. So even those two characters are divided as to whether or not or they, they see themselves as serving two different masters. So they, they see themselves as diplomats as well as a military fighting force. Now, I, I think the role of Starfleet can change, like in the episode yesterday's Enterprise, where... In one second, they're explorers, but the next second, something changed in their history, and suddenly they're fully battleship, they're fully engaged in all-out warfare, all because one incident in their past has changed the course, so everything there is suddenly full military. But even in the most recent episode of 
Discovery, we see the shuttlecraft is about to be boarded. Well, Captain Lorca and the pilot, they don't even speak. They each have their positions. They each have their role. And to me, that looks like a drill. It's been well rehearsed and practiced to perfection. So that does show to me that they are a military force. They have a rank system. They fight as a force to either defend or to attack. And they have the authority to use deadly force and they're accountable to unlimited liability for that use of force. So you don't, you don't have that unless you have a military force behind it. I don't know if you see it differently. You're not really going to get an argument from me because in peacetime, the military does do other things. It's not just about fighting. It may be a humanitarian mission. It might be, uh, it might be a diplomatic mission. It might, you know, it, there are many, uh, even historically, although everything's been pretty much explored right now on Earth, uh, historically, like in the 19th century, the, the navies of the day doing some exploration. Right. Absolutely. I think that's what they're trying to capture with Star Trek is that same, that same theme. I mean, even Gene Roddenberry said, we're trying to capture Horatio Hornblower's adventures, which is exactly the, the, what the setting you're, you're framing it. Basically what, what we have when Roddenberry created it is the 1960s where the people working on the show might have been servicemen and maybe their sort of example is NASA of the time, the Apollo missions. Right. And that's all manned by, you know, Air Force personnel. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Navy too, because, yeah. uh, who was it? Jim Lovell? Jim Lovell was Navy. Yeah. John Glenn was a Marine, but it's all good. So, so basically we do have a military structure and discipline, uh, at least in the pilots. And it's like I said earlier, it's just like on a big ship uh, that's cut off from Earth. You're just bringing the ground crew, you're bringing your engineers, you're bringing your scientists, you're bringing your physicians with you because you're, you're cut off from home base. But it's essentially that same idea where the people we're watching, there might be a little less discipline with the the people working below decks. I, I don't know, someone like McCoy seems very much more relaxed in his demeanor, less military than Kirk, because he's he's ground crew, so to speak. Or that's how it feels. Right. Starfleet is a bit of a because we've seen wars. You know, Discovery right now has a, like the beginnings of a conflict with the Klingons, or the original conflict with the Klingons. We've seen wars in uh, Deep Space Nine has had several wars. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, with the Cardassians, with the the Dominion. So whenever we're at wartime, Starfleet sort of becomes more militaristic and you, we actually see characters that are branded as soldiers trained as soldiers and ground troops and suddenly we have those but when we're in peacetime which is like most of next generation and then you know the the, the same service has an exploratory and diplomatic mission it's still a military organization or at least styled on the military structure and discipline. It's interesting you finish on discipline because that's where I'd really like to look at next to continue answering the question. So in the military, discipline and maintenance of order are very much paramount. And I don't mean to throw a pun in there. Um, we have summary trials, courts, martials, boards of inquiry, summary and investigation. And these are all conducted when there's a breach of discipline, a service offense, a loss of life a significant injury, or any major loss of equipment. So what we see on screen with regards to those service tribunals, those inquiries, those are all real facts of life within a military organization. They happen more often than we'd like, but they do happen uh, at a predictable pace. We have an entire branch 
known as the JAG branch, the Judge Advocate General branch that investigates these uh, offenses or prosecutes these offenses. And they're tied with the military police under the legal system. And we've seen a lot of that in Star Trek. But one of the service offenses I really, really want to talk about, and I've always looked, been looking for a forum to talk about this, is the way that Star Trek handles the offense of mutiny. And especially with the current Star Trek Discovery, how the entire series is based on the events of mutiny. And if you don't want me to spoil Star Trek Discovery for the remainder of your life, just fast forward the podcast maybe five minutes because I'm going to go on a rant here. Okay. So <laughs> if I go from right from the source, Memory Alpha, which is the canon in canon source for Star Trek, mutiny is defined as an unlawful attempt by military personnel to seize or overthrow military authority. Okay, we can we can see that quite easily. It goes on to say mutiny refers specifically to any attempt by a starship's crew members to illegally take control of the vessel from its commanding officer. Now it says specifically and then it goes on to say crew members, plural, more than one. So one person cannot commit the offense of mutiny. So we have whether it's Canadian law, US law, British law, you can join a mutiny you can entice others to join a mutiny, or you can fail to suppress a mutiny. The only individual person, like the single actor that can be charged, is the person who fails to suppress the mutiny. If you know that a mutiny is about to become and you don't act, that's the only person that can be charged alone. So now we have an entire series based on the fact that a single person committed the act of mutiny, but it's not even an offense. So you can join, you can entice, you can fail to suppress. There's also conspiring to commit mutiny, but that's typically when the plot is discovered before the act of mutiny occurs. And also, you can't conspire with yourself. You need another person. Mm -hmm. So to make it for Discovery to, to actually fit the charge of mutiny, they could have had at least one other person. One other character could have joined with Michael Burnham, and they could have both been thrown in the brig. And when uh, hopefully I'm not spoiling discovery for anybody here if you haven't watched it yeah it's in the pilot i mean this is the first episode so yeah go pay yeah. your 10 bucks and go watch it but anyhow <laughs> that other person could have been thrown in the brig and when the brig got blown up that person could have been destroyed and then you don't have that person hanging around anymore or the other three people or whatever they could have even been three vulcans that agreed with her point of view and had some experience then that would have been a mutiny and then michael burnham could be Starfleet's sole surviving mutineer rather than Starfleet's only mutineer because there's no such thing as an only mutineer. Hmm. Now, she could have been charged with assault, neglect of duty, disobedient, misconduct, insubordination, all of those things alone or in combination, but not mutiny. And then we can go back all the way to the original series where Spock turns the Enterprise over to McCoy in the menagerie and has himself arrested on a charge of mutiny. But once again, Spock acted alone. There was no person that helped them out. There was no second person to, to be charged along with them. You can't commit mutiny alone. The one they do get it right is in the Next Generation episode, The Pegasus. And that's when Captain Pressman explains, well, he's an admiral in the episode, but at the time of the mutiny, he's a captain. He's faced with a mutiny led by his first officer, chief engineer, and most of the officers. So Riker acted to suppress the mutiny and escaped with Pressman and a few others. That's a perfect example of mutiny. It has to be a group. It can't be a single person. So that's that's my rant. It's over. If uh, you're wondering when to stop fast forwarding, that's about right now. Uh, I won't 
ruin discovery for you anymore, I promise. So there must be a lot of terminology that the writers get wrong because they don't have the proper background. Right. I do want to get into that a little bit later when we talk about the lack of non-commissioned members in Star Trek. But if we could just clean up legal here, mm-hmm. I got another another little tidbit. I won't go on such a rant as mutiny because that, that one's a little bit over the top. But uh, I, I found a, a neat quote. I was watching an episode of Next Generation Interface. That's the one where Jordy gets dressed up in a suit and tries to go look for his mother. He's like hooked up to a probe, yeah. So in that episode, Picard tells him to no longer carry out any uh, any more experiments. It's too dangerous. And then Data confronts Jordy as about to he's about to do it on his own. And then Data says the line to Jordy, "I cannot confine you to quarters for something you have not done yet." Well, that is completely false. If a superior officer knows that someone is about to place themselves or the ship in danger, if they know that the person is about to deliberately disobey the captain, of course, they have the authority to confine them to quarters for something they have not done yet. You can simply order them to their quarters and they have to obey, or you can call the military police to arrest them for about to about to commit the offense of uh, disobey a command, disobey a lawful command. There's so many avenues that can be done that this this one line I just had to challenge it. I just thought it was funny. It just stuck out at me when Data says, I cannot confine you to quarters for something you have not done yet. Well, the characters in Star Trek are very forgiving. <laughs> you know, there there is this discipline in place, but uh, for drama's sake, I guess. You also have to feel that they're a family so that you connect with them. And right. uh, so a, a lot of the time, there's, uh, you know, they, they'll forgive not just minor offenses, but major ones. It's like, oh, well, bygones. You know, it yeah. all it all came out well in the end, but there is a lot of insubordination, a lot of, uh, you know, disobeying orders, the whole maverick trope, basically, the loose cannon kind of cop that disobeys orders. It's TV, so that gets in there as well. Yeah, it creates some drama, so that that's all good. But when, when Worf kills Duras and Picard simply has him in his office and issues a reprimand, a reprimand will appear on your record. Now, if I wanted to give somebody a reprimand, I'd have to at least have a trial and prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, I wouldn't just be able to have them in my office for a quick sit down and say, okay, now you have a reprimand for murdering somebody. I mean, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that that's, that's what another cringeworthy military law, uh, moment. Being called to the principal's office. That's right. It's pretty much what he gets for, for murder. When Picard said that he had a trial, for losing the stargazer. I mean, that's very, very accurate. And we see that even right now where there were some collisions in the U.S. Navy and suddenly we see that captains and senior command level people from those ships are now relieved of command and the Navy is doing a review of the best practices. This is U.S. Navy doing reviews of best practices in order to prevent these collisions and loss of life as well. Like, let's not... Uh, water it down here. Some sailors were killed in those collisions. That's a fact of life. That's true. That That is genuine. So when Picard lost the Stargazer, there would be a board of inquiry. There would be a very serious level review as to what happened and why that ship was lost. And I, I'm going to go into a Star Trek trope here, which which is when you do the math, doesn't quite seem to be very supportable. But every time one of those red shirts is killed in the original series, Captain Kirk would be accountable for that loss of life, and there would be a trial or a tribunal or a summary inquiry for each of those incidents to find out 
were best practices and procedures followed? Was that loss of life preventable? Had everything been done to prevent that from happening in the first place? So yeah, on screen, it's outrageous when someone is killed for no reason, when the little styrofoam cube is crushed and the people are rematerialized. But that one instance would be a summary trial on itself or a summary investigation, I should say. That's exactly the death I was thinking of, too. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> but but is it is part of that um, laxer kind of discipline, the idea that it is based on 19th century naval stories or that you're out on the frontier and so you got to make your own law up to a point although that kind of falls apart once we get into the the next gen era where they're kind of close to, to star bases pretty much all the time you know right well even in the original series we had uh ben finney who was ejected in the pod mm-hmm. and next thing you know the enterprise is completely diverted to go to court and captain kirk is held accountable for that loss of life I mean, that's exactly how it would happen. However, it would happen for every single death, like not just Ben Finney's death because there was some past relationship between them. Every single crew person, every single uh, member of that ship's company would would demand that same level of review. So you could actually do a uh, sort of Star Trek JAG series that takes place in between each episode. That's right. Where the, the those events are investigated. Yeah. Why did Rock throw that guy into a bottomless pit? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Why did you leave a single security officer all by himself standing next to a bottomless pit with no fall arrest equipment? Yeah. Uh, Just one of many, many, many examples. Uh, The way the TV sort of collapses the truth into something, you know, streamlined and perhaps uh, ridiculous. How does life on the Enterprise or any of the ships that we've seen actually compare to you know, modern day ships. I think there are some similarities and there are some differences. And I have a lot of friends in the Royal Canadian Navy that have that I've spoken to over my life and they've given me a good picture of what shipboard life is. And they've been very candid with me. They've not held back. But however, my, my own personal experience aboard a ship is not where I ha- I've seen this. I have been aboard ships. I have been to the messes, the galleys. I have seen berths and bunks. So I have seen it all firsthand. So I think I, I can speak to it very, very uh, clearly. Now, the first thing on our starships we see is for life, life aboard ship, is we see uh, in the original series, we see the recreation deck. In Next Generation, we see 10 forward. Those are all places where people aboard ship can gather and relax. However, in our current navies, the way it's been since, I guess, the 1600s, even further back than that, those areas are separated. And they're separated for good reason. They're separated by rank. So on board a a Canadian Forces vessel or on board a a U.S. warship or British, any Navy you want to compare this to, you're going to have an area for the crew to relax. And that's the the mess. And that's it's not the correct term at this time of our lives. It's known as the men's mess. But I think there's a better term now. I think that the word men has been changed to something a little bit more appropriate to the time. But that that's how it's known. So it's the men's mess, and that's where they go to relax. Moving on the chain, we then have the chiefs and POs mess. And these areas are separated. There's no mingling between the, these two areas during off-duty time. So when a crew person is relaxing, taking their time, they don't need their boss sitting next to them, watching them, 
basically gripe about their job or have a, a joke with somebody or I know U.S. ships are dry, but Canadian ships uh, do serve uh, alcohol on board ship. And you don't need your boss watching how many beers you have when you're trying to relax. So there is a distinct separation between those two messes. And there is also a bit of a change in formality. So when you're in the cruise mess, it's a little bit less formal. You might have video games. You might have other little social games that, that you play that are private to what your experience is all, all above board. I mean, I'm not saying anything nasty here, but when you move to the Chiefs and POs mess, it's a little bit more formal. You're not really going to see video games in there. Things will be uh, a little bit more respectful because you are dealing with a higher rank. The quality of the area will be a little bit better, a little bit finer because you do receive some very important guests in the Chiefs and POs mess. Moving up, you have the officer's mess, uh, which is known as the wardroom. The wardroom is where the officers go to relax. So this is the entire spectrum of officers, right from sub-lieutenant all the way to the XO, the 2IC of the ship, the commander. So these people would relax in the wardroom. The wardroom is one step a little bit more formal. Maybe the dress code is a little bit higher for off-duty time aboard ship. The expectation of behavior is a little bit more strict. There are specific duties based on your rank and standing within the wardroom that have to be respected. You can't just um, jump in as a, as a junior member of the mess and do as you please. There's certain protocols that you have to respect. And then there's the captain's mess. The captain is not allowed to enter the officer's mess without permission of the officer's mess because it's where they can relax. So you have four different areas where you can have recreation aboard a Navy ship, and they're each separated by rank. So we look at the next generation in particular, where we have 10 forward, and that's where everybody comes and goes. They all mingle in the same place. Mm -hmm. And we even see that in the episode Lower Decks, where we have Riker and Deanna Troy are doing crew evaluations in, in 10 forward. In the mess, yeah. With the same room, in the same room as those people that they're evaluating. I mean, that is so inappropriate and that would so not be done in a military context. You certainly wouldn't do crew evaluations in a recreational area. Yeah, even in a civilian life, you shouldn't be doing your human resources in a public area where other people can overhear. So now let's jump into your favorite, which is Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. And what do they have for their recreation? They have Quark's Bar. That's where they go. Well, now that's different than a mess because it's a public area. So if I wanted to do something social as a captain and I wanted to invite a major and maybe a warrant officer and a corporal, maybe for some reason we all have a similar interest, we want to talk and socialize, well, we would go to a public place that is not a military mess to do that. There is circumstances where I could invite people into my own mess who are not of my own rank, but that would require me to ask permission to do that. It's not something I can just simply do on my own, but if I want to invite people of different rank or mixed ranks, I would go to a public area. And that's where Quark's Bar seems to get it right, where you can have Chief O'Brien and Bashir and Cisco all at the same place at the same time, all socializing together. And there is no specific protocol that people have to obey. There is no dress code. And if Bashir gets upset, he doesn't have to ask permission from Cisco to leave. He can just walk out the door and, and leave. There is no protocol that he has to obey. 
So that that's where um, Deep Space Nine kind of hits the mark. But they're not. They have a particular situation where the base is also. You know, I, I don't know what the equivalent of that is. But, you know, the base also has is like in a civilian center. Yeah. Well, we have we have military bases, and we do have. Uh, civilian employees on our military bases, and we do have civilian businesses. If you go to Base Kingston, you might be surprised to see on the property of the base, there is an actual functioning running Tim Hortons and McDonald's on the base. And members of the public can come in on the base, go to the Tim Hortons drive through and they can grab their McDonald's if they like. Those areas are open to the public without any scrutiny. However, if you go one step further, then that's an area you shouldn't be. But there are stores, there are civilian employees. Civilian employees do really play a huge part in the ability of not only the Canadian Armed Forces, but uh, military forces worldwide to operate. Some of them are subject to the Code of Surface Discipline. They can be charged. They are held accountable for their um, conduct and their behavior, almost to the same degree as a military person. But those civilian employees, they do some routine tasks. They manage our bars. They manage our stores this is where, where military families can buy groceries on base. They do maintenance and repairs to our facilities. So many tasks are done by our, our very valued civilian employees in the military. And we could even say that the Enterprise D is built on that same model, even though it moves through space, because they have their own, their, you know, their families are traveling with them. Mod the Barber is certainly not a you know, yeah, military personnel. That's right. I was going to say as that's exactly where I was going to go because he's the only – well, no, there's Guinan. I can't really remember any. Oh, the teachers, the school teachers, mm -hmm. they would be civilian employees. Probably some scientists yeah. there that are on, like, attached to, to certain missions or laboratories, yeah. Certainly. Okay, well so, – okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, <laughs> we're both trying to be so polite that we can't we can't say anything. So Canada. When we <laughs> when we look at um, the rank system, one of the things I always found difficult to interpret was the uh, rank system in the original series because we had we had Kirk's uniform with two squiggly lines and one dashed line, and then Spock as a commander with two, and then the lieutenant commanders, so McCoy and Scotty with one solid bar and one dashed, and then. Sulu and Uhura as lieutenants. And I do say lieutenant because I'm Canadian and um, the entire Commonwealth pronounces it that way. There are other ways to pronounce that word. However, I choose to say lieutenant. And then Chekhov, he had nothing as an ensign, so no rank insignia. So how does that differentiate him from a member of the crew when he's holding the rank of ensign? Uh, what I really liked was when the next gen came out, the rank structure is almost identical to the CF rank, the Canadian Forces rank structure, especially when it comes to the Royal Canadian Navy. We have rings on the sleeve similar to the original series, but when you take the pips on the collar of our next gen members and you compare them side by side with the rings on the sleeve of our members of the Royal Canadian Navy, you find an immediate parallel. So captain is four, commander is three, lieutenant commander is two solid and one narrow or two solid and one, I don't know what we'd call that. We would call that filled in with black anyhow. But the rank structure mirrored, and I, and I really appreciated that level of detail with the rank structures. One of the ranks that I found was difficult to wrap my head around was when Mendez says in the menagerie that, Christopher Pike holds the rank of fleet captain and any other reference we see from next generation, the original series or anywhere else, 
we don't see the rank of fleet captain. We see it goes from captain to commodore and then the admirals. So uh, rear admiral, vice admiral, and then full admiral. We see that quite clearly and we see those ranks quite often. But we never saw anybody else other than Christopher Pike being addressed as the rank of fleet captain. And we do have that in the military. There is no fleet captain in the military, but we do have a system of ranks that stand aside from the typical rank structure. So we see in an infantry regiment, for example, or an armored corps regiment, we see we have an honorary colonel, uh, we have an honorary lieutenant colonel. They don't hold any rank. They don't hold any power or authority over the military personnel of the unit, but they hold, hold an honorary rank respective of their influence within the community and how at the level that they can support the regiment through charitable organizations or trusts, basically engaging the regiment with the community. Our schools and our corps and branches, they'll have colonel commandants, the colonel commandant of a school or the colonel commandant of a branch. For example, the Royal Canadian Infantry Corps has a colonel commandant, and he's the representative of that branch. Throughout business circles, the colonel commandant can go directly to the chief of defense staff with an issue. They're not subjected to the chain of command. They're basically free runners who can represent or speak for the branch on topics that are relevant. So that's where I kind of place fleet captain. So Christopher Pike would have served as a captain. He would have been on a training vessel. He would have been injured. And then in his retirement, Starfleet would have offered him an honorary rank of fleet captain. So Although the episode does show that he has some military authority and the ability to render a judgment, which is not something that an honorary colonel or colonel commandant would have. I mean, things change over time. I would see that that's where that fleet captain rank fell into. Okay. But otherwise, it's it's very close to what we have in our Navy. Right. The thing that is missing, mm -hmm. and I blame Roddenberry for this, and I'll explain why. The thing that is missing is that there are virtually no non-commissioned members in Star Trek or Starfleet. Now, we see Miles O'Brien. We saw Chief Kyle, who was in the original series. But we don't really see a lot of NCMs. And on a ship, we have uh, departments. And each department has a command team of itself. Now, within that command team, so let's talk engineering because we all know engineering. We all know Scotty and Jordy and, and uh, Chief Miles O'Brien, everything like that. In the engineering, you would have the engineering officer. And then you would have the engineering chief petty officer. So these two work together as a command team and they manage that department. And the officer will report to the CO or the XO of the ship on matters relating to engineering. And the chief petty officer will report to the coxswain of the ship, who is the ship's chief petty officer. So these two work together as a command team to run and manage that department. And one of the expressions in the Navy is that the officers work to fight the battle and the non-commissioned members work to fight the ship and not, not fight against the ship, but to operate the ship's fighting capability. So that's where those two people will fit in together and, and merge. And when, for example, when the officer in the department is off duty, the chief petty officer of that department is on duty. So they spell each other off. And we do see that on Star Trek quite often where Picard or Riker or uh, Kirk will step off the bridge and someone immediately fills that spot. And that's very genuine. That's very genuine. Data gets, off, gets out of the ops console 
and somebody immediately jumps into that seat and takes over. That's how it works in one of those branches. And the one thing, the biggest thing that's missing from the original series and from Next Generation and on and on is that role of the coxswain the chief of the boat, the main uh, non-commissioned member aboard that ship, the person who held my rank and my position at the regimental level on board that ship. So looking after drill, dress, deportment, and development of the NCM Corps, that role would have been a great story influence in either Next Gen or the original series. And the way that I see it is if McCoy was, or sorry, if um, DeForest Kelly had it been casted into that role. Nothing would have changed except for all the medicine stuff. I mean, they could have had another doctor, but if it was uh, Chief Petty Officer McCoy instead of Dr. McCoy, the dynamic would have still been there. However, DeForest Kelly would have played it from a more uh, disciplinarian, taking care of the troops aspect rather than from a medical. But the the two lines do get together quite well. Because are there too many commissioned officers on these shows? Like in each team? Only in the fact that there are too many commissioned officers that have roles aboard the show. If you look at the scene, the specific scene in Wrath of Khan, where they're getting ready to do battle against the Reliant, Mm -hmm. and the scene flashes to the torpedo room, and you can see a whole bunch of people running around with different uniforms on, which we're supposed to believe are are the crew members because they have the white shoulders Instead of the tunic, they have the white shoulders on their, on their jacket and they're pulling up the grates and they're, they're running around from place to place. And there is one person standing there watching it all happen. And that's the officer. So the other people are all the members of the crew, all tending to their duties. And the officer is making sure that the plan is unfolding as, as it should be. So in that scene, we do see a lot of NCMs doing their job, taking care of their profession, but being cast in roles where they have, I mean, we have crewman Dax who had feet that didn't fit the boots. I mean, all right, we remember that. There was the crewman who was suspected of being Romulan during the drumhead. Simon Tarsis. And he wanted to be an officer, but he wasn't capable because he didn't want to have the, the scrutiny of the background check. So he applied as an, and as a non-commissioned member. So we have little tokens here and there that there is a crew, but to have those roles flushed out. I think we could have done better. And and the reason I blame Roddenberry for this is because his experience is as a bomber pilot in World War II. And while being an officer in the Air Force, I have to be very careful not to upset anybody from the Air Force, but the officers in the Air Force don't really share command with an NCM. Now, if I'm an Air Force, let's say I'm an Air Force officer and I'm at a school or I'm at a wing or a base, then yes, most definitely I would share my command with my chief warrant officer and that is completely accepted. Like I I get that. But on a bomber, you would not share your command with an NCM. The members of the crew would be in charge of running their part of the aircraft. And once the aircraft is about to take off or in the air, any member of that crew can make a decision based on the safety of that aircraft. So their word is equal to the pilot of the, or the captain of that vessel. So in that respect, their word is equal. But as far as command of that aircraft, that stays strictly within the officers. So I think that perhaps that's what formed Gene Roddenberry's vision and made everybody on Star Trek basically working as an officer with only a few players here and there 
as members of the crew. For example, Yeoman Janice Rand, she is a member of the crew. She holds the appointment of Yeoman, which is a non-commissioned member. All I'm saying is there should have been more of them because they do out, the non-commissioned members do outnumber the officers aboard a vessel. So anytime we see even some of the ensigns could feasibly have just been crewmen instead. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a very valid point. Why does Wesley need to be an acting ensign? Can't he just be an acting crewman? Or or just make him substantive. Like, make him substantive as a crewman. And that's what my son is doing right now. My son wants to be an officer in the Canadian Forces. And right now, he's a private in the Signals Corps. And in February, he'll be promoted to the rank of corporal. However, his goal is to become an officer. So while he's waiting to earn enough credentials to become an officer. He's serving as a private and eventually uh, serving as a corporal while waiting for an opportunity to present himself to become an officer. That's a very good example with Wesley Crusher. And there are a lot of weird aberrations. I, I guess the reverse of what you're talking about uh, is on Deep Space Nine, where uh, Chief O'Brien, he shouldn't be in charge of engineering alone. Right. There should be an officer there as well. Yes, there should be a command team, and they should have a crew working for themselves. Chief O'Brien shouldn't be going around twisting wrenches. <laughs> yeah. He should be supervising the person going around twisting wrenches. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's not the best job. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that kind of thing going on. And I guess that part of the, I mean, it's all because it's television and it, uh, you need to service your actors. And it's that kind of uh, streamlining that I was talking about earlier. But I guess that's also the reason why characters don't uh, seem to get I don't know. How how does that work? The the whole how do you get promoted from one? We know that famously Riker kept refusing uh, his own command and staying as a first officer by right. choice. Is it true that by rights he should have been a captain by, you know, by the end of that next gen series? Do their promotions happen quickly enough? Too quickly? Too many of them? Not enough? Yeah, if you have a, a commander who refuses command, you're, you're going to go to the bottom of the merit list. I'm not saying you would never be promoted, but there's going to be a merit list. You're going to be measured against your peers on other ships, and you're going to be merited against the entire fleet. So it doesn't matter if you're a galaxy class, constitution class, constellation class, doesn't matter. You're going to be merited against all those other first officers. And when that opportunity to command is presented to you and you pass it up, they're going to put you right at the bottom of the merit list. You're going to get an evaluation that's going to be less than favorable because you've turned down the opportunity to command, things aren't going to go well. Like we, we do have a lot of effort put into succession planning in the military. A lot of the things in Star Trek we see really do service the story and the fan quite well. And that, that's important. And that's, that's probably why they do this. But a crew staying together for five years or seven years, you would see crew, crew rotations. Like when Beverly Crusher is assigned to Starfleet Medical. And she's no longer on the Enterprise and a new chief medical officer is assigned. That is normal. That is routine. Uh, the fact that she came back, that's a little bit unusual, but it's not beyond the ability to imagine. Uh, where we see a really bizarre uh, career progression is with Uhura. We see Uhura as a lieutenant on board the original Enterprise, and she stays at that same station. Then when the Enterprise comes back for the movies... She's promoted to lieutenant commander. Her responsibilities don't change. She doesn't have more people working for her. She's doing the exact same job. She just is holding a higher rank. And that, that wouldn't happen. When we see someone like Chekhov, 
go from being an ensign navigator aboard the Enterprise. And then if you want to take the little, the little weird story that people try to throw out that he used to work in engineering when Khan took over the ship and he only got moved to the helm after that incident, that makes a lot of sense because that is a good thing for a, an ensign to have experienced. So working at, in the engineering area behind the scenes before moving to the helm or to navigation, I should say, understanding how the ship works and then moving to a position where you actually control the ship. That's a great career path. And then later on, he moves on as the substitute or backup science officer. And then he ends up being science officer of, of his own aboard another ship. That's an excellent career development. That That's exactly what we want to see in a current military career development. A variety of uh, tasks and experiences. And, and obviously, because in the Star Trek movies, at some point, there's like three captains aboard that one ship. <laughs> right. Yes, that's right. So. so captain of engineering, captain of training school. But even Spock, we see Spock. He was the 2IC. Did he pass over command? I can't remember if he passed over an opportunity to command. I can't remember. I don't think so. But he was 2IC of the ship. And then Kirk is promoted. He took a leave of absence. So after being the second in command of the original Enterprise, he took a leave of absence. He, he quit. And then he came back. So when he comes back, he's out of the succession plan for that time that he's away. When he comes back, Perhaps he has the credibility to return into that succession plan, but they're not going to give him the best detail. So how do he end up being a captain in charge of a school? Well, that would be a great thing for somebody who had taken a leave of absence instead of moving on. That seems to fit the narrative quite well. I mean, I guess it's all it's all retconning at this point and I'm, I'm just speculating, but all the pieces of the puzzle seem to fit okay. and making sense. Perfectly. <laughs> I mean, sense within the context of something that is essentially nonsense that we have to sort of, you know, get some no prizes in there to explain right. away. And some of the novels and comics have tried to do so, but usually those writers don't, uh, aren't, uh, you know, military experts any more than the show's writers were so um, right. we get all sorts let's talk about the I, i'm looking at some of the notes that you sent me and what about that the seldom used reserve activation clause this is how mccoy gets conscripted yeah. back into uh service in the motion picture okay so seldom used yes absolutely seldom used but it does exist it is absolutely not little known you are okay. told quite clearly <laughs> that if there is a capability that you possess that you can be recalled instantly if that capability is required by the military. And there is, there is no secret about it. It is well known. For example, when I was in Sierra Leone, I was qualified to be the task force sergeant major. I had all my vaccinations up to date. I had a visa to enter the country. I had experience with the people. I knew the culture. Uh, I knew the team and Quite normally, I was succeeded in that role. Somebody else came in and I handed over that role to them and I went home. But before I left, they said, look, for the next eight months to a year, you can be recalled to this job on a moment's notice. So if my successor had been sick, injured or anything even more serious, they could easily just pick up the phone and say, hey, guess what? Pack your bags. You're going back. The person who relieved you is is no longer in the job. You're the only person who has a, a active visa to enter that country and take over those responsibilities. And you're in that role 
until his successor is trained up to relieve you. So, yeah, I like that scene for the uh, comedy of it, but the uh, seldom used is definitely accurate, but little known it's absolutely not little known. It is very well known. What about some of the other conscriptions that we see? The situation is extreme, but um, the folding of the Maquis crew into Voyager's crew. Is that something that could conceivably happen? Probably not. I, I don't know what kind of circumstances would be equivalent. Well, they were adversaries, right? So mm -hmm. that kind of stretches it, but they're in a desperate situation. But it is quite normal to have a team that is made up of different uh, services. For example, uh, Lieutenant General Peter Devlin, who was the commander of the Canadian Army, he served with the U.S. Army at the Corps level as a Corps Deputy Commander. And as a Canadian, he deployed to Iraq. And if you listen to the Canadian Military uh, History Podcast, the episode with Peter Devlin, he'll explain why that happened and how that happened. Right now I'm on a course where I'm learning about battle groups and... Um, Geez, I guess I just failed the course because I used the wrong term. I'm learning about uh, multinational divisions that are put together, cobbled up from Polish, Canadian, U.S., British, all different types of forces put together in order to make a multinational division. And that is quite normal. As, and we see it all the time. Um, in Afghanistan, we saw it quite well, where we have Germans, people from the Netherlands, Canadians, Americans, British, all together, all fighting, all part of the same organization, all part of the same structure. So not really adversaries being merged together, but definitely a composite unit made up of different countries and each of them bringing their own capability as a piece of the puzzle to build that multinational division. We see that all the time. I'll give you a, a couple of other examples from the show just to see what, what you think. Sure. What about our favorite single mutineer, Michael Burnham, who is a, you know, heading for prison and then conscripted by Captain Lorca to work on the discovery? Okay. So the maintenance of discipline, I mean, you can't subvert the, at least in the Canadian forces, you can't subvert the military detainee process. It's there for a reason. It's there to rehabilitate the person. In the Canadian Forces, we don't have life sentences. We have two years less a day is the maximum you can serve in detention barracks. However, if the offense is serious enough, you can serve out the rest of your sentence in a civilian prison. So if, if you do commit an offense that does earn that length of a sentence, two years less a day would be in uh, military in custody location, which is in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, detention barracks, and then the rest would be served elsewhere. And I mean, without naming specific service people who have committed crimes, there is an instant where some Canadian Forces members conducted some crimes, thought they could escape to the U.S. They did escape to the U.S., committed more offenses in the U.S., and were arrested. They're serving their prison sentence in the U.S. for the crimes they did there. However, Their prison sentence for what they did in Canada before that is waiting for them should they be released. So, yeah, you can't you can't escape your requirement to fulfill your obligation to custody. So, so Lorca has uh, like wide powers that are unrealistic. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's also a ship with a cadet with, you know, she's rooming with a cadet who's it's, it's very rare to see that aboard a, a ship in Star Trek. So she's doing a, an on-the-job on training aspect of her education program. I guess so. What about exchange programs? A matter of honor being the, the yeah. classic where, you know, Riker goes over to a Klingon ship and Kern comes over to the 
enterprise. Does that happen? We have that all the time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When I was a master corporal, we had a corporal from the Australian army that was studying in Toronto and he attached to us and he served as a member of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. However, he still wore the uniform of the Australian army, but he was part of our unit. He was on strength with us. What he would do is he would sign in as an interesting little uh, route. He would sign his pay sheets with us. We would countersign to confirm his attendance. And then that pay sheet had to be sent to the U.S. to the Australian embassy. And the Australian embassy would have to send that to his unit so the guy could get paid. It was a little bit of a weird relationship we had because we didn't have a formal agreement with Australia to enact this type of thing. And then a good friend of mine, his name is Al Craigie. I'm sure he would appreciate me naming him. So I don't think that this is me naming him in any unfavorable way. But as a Canadian warrant officer, he served in Edinburgh with the British Army. And they really valued him because much of the unit he was attached to was deployed to Iraq. So they needed a warrant officer to stay in Edinburgh and look after the home base sort of thing and all the needs of a deployed unit away from their home base. So he was able to provide that to the unit when the majority of their unit was deployed to Iraq. So yes, it does happen. Exchange programs happen. They can be for personal reasons. They can be for training reasons. For example, the, ga the example I gave earlier with uh, Peter Devlin, um, Lieutenant General Peter Devlin, as a core 2IC of a U.S. core. I mean, it does happen, and it does happen for all the right reasons. We want to learn from our allies. We want to learn what they're doing and maybe adopt something or maybe recognize that that's not something that we want to adopt. And uh, speaking to your course on multinational units, the example in Star Trek would be D-Space-9 for that. Yes, absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah. As a last topic, we, I mean, we've talked about Uh, you know, discipline and protocols and uh, how the military works. But the, the function of the military is to defend and the whole idea of fighting or military conflict. That's something that we haven't really broached. So maybe we should look at, you know, the rules of engagement, that sort right. of thing. The, the times that we do see the Enterprise or whatever ship in battle, in military conflicts, uh, whether that's as part of a war or just, you know, like a border skirmish, the neutral zone stuff. How does that compare? How does the, the show represent that aspect of military life? Well, a lot of it is done for drama. And I'll say two quick things, and then I'll get into the actual meat and potatoes of that question. When the away team beams down, and suddenly the person in charge starts explaining what the plan is, that's not how we do it. We typically do all our planning before we enter the conflict zone. So the thing that always catches my eye is when they beam into an area and the person in charge says, set phasers for stun. Well, don't you think you would have done that before entering the environment? Uh, <laughs> yeah. That would have been part of your briefing, maybe part of your rehearsals that you would conduct before going into the into the conflict zone. So when we look at rules of engagement, each member of the Canadian forces when deployed is given a card that they have to carry with them and they have to understand and they have to receive training on their rules of engagement. What is allowed? What is not allowed? How is that force to be employed against an adversary or a threat? Now, that rules of engagement card has to be signed by a commander of a command, which means 
the commander of the Canadian Army, the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, the commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force, commander of Canadian Forces Expedition Command. All these commanders of a command have the authority to sign your rules of engagement card. In Star Trek, we do see them use force. We do see them using an appropriate level of force. One of the things that I always wonder about is why do they have to set their phasers to kill at any time? Like, I understand when two ships are in combat and you need to stop that threat. So you need to fire photon torpedoes and phasers and maybe even blow up that ship because that threat is so great to your safety that that's the only reasonable way. But when you're squaring off against an adversary and you have the option to set for stun, where you can stun the person, take control of them, take them into custody or outright kill them. Why would that kill setting even be there? Uh, there is one example where this stun setting didn't work. I'm struggling with the episode name. It's the one where um, Riker falls in love with a girl from a culture where they're trying to uh, strike a peace deal between each other. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to kill a member of the opposite delegation. And he stuns her. It doesn't work. He stuns her again. It doesn't work. And then he has to kill her. The vengeance factor, I think. There you go. Yeah, it's not exactly the most memorable title. Well, what's the point of having stun that doesn't work? Uh, We see that in the original series where the people who are in the streets, they're running around and they're coming to attack the crew of the Enterprise. And then Kirk orders stun setting wide dispersion and he hits them all with the stun setting and they all collapse and they can escape. That's a very appropriate use of that stun setting. Why would they set, set it to kill? Why would they need to actually shoot to kill in those types of circumstances. I think that Star Trek does do a good job with use of force and applying that force. I think those examples speak to that. You know, in the space battles, what we see from the outside of the ship is obviously, you know, phasers and torpedoes. What about the how it feels on on the battle deck itself? Is that is that at all? Well, I've being in the army, I've never been aboard a ship in battle, so I can tell you that I don't really know from the people that I've met, the people that I've spoken to outside of drills. I don't. I've never met a member of the Royal Canadian Navy or the British Royal Navy that have been in battle. You're fighting, you're fighting the ship. You're operating the weapon systems. What are the, some of the missions that we're undertaking right now? We're interdicting drug trafficking in the Caribbean. We're out trying to do counter piracy operations in the seas surrounding the Middle East. We do, we do have vessels that are actively engaged in conflict right now. Those crew members do have the opportunity to use force. I don't know. I think I've danced around your question. That's all right. I don't don't think I really hit it. Well, maybe if uh, people do have that experience that are listening, you know, please chime in at uh, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Leave a comment to, you know, tell us if uh, obviously Star Trek is going to take liberties. And I mean, everybody should be wearing a seatbelt on that show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, the consoles exploding and kind of current is running through those things. Why are they death traps? Obviously, it's it's a television show or uh, you know, a series of films. Uh, but as far as, uh, you know, the way they call the shots, and I, I'm wondering, because is it also something that, just like the away team uh, missions, should be much more pre-planned and much more code-worded, you know, like shortcuts and than what we actually see? Because what we see is, to make it dramatic, 
is strategy or tactics, not strategy, because uh, but tactics on the fly. So how much of that you know feels true? So if if you have that experience, uh, let us know. I can definitely confirm that we do have rehearsals and we rehearse everything. We do have drills, specific drills to operate specific systems. And we rehearse it until it becomes second nature. Yeah, if any of the other listeners can help out in the comments, that'd be great. Right, because there are many branches of military service and many countries possibly listening to this. So if you're uh, you know, a service person in any branch, even you know, merchant marines, or whatever, because Star Trek's often been compared to the merchant marines. Right. But I don't know, except without the commerce aspect. Uh, so well, I... The- yeah. The helmsman from Star Trek Enterprise, he grew up on a ship of that nature. Right. The, the boomers. Yeah. That's right. So let, let us know if any of that connects with you or your experience or if it doesn't. Mike, this has been a very, very interesting discussion. It's a lot of stuff that uh, I didn't know about. And uh, I love to see how reality compares to the, the Star Trek franchise's reality. Can you tell the folks where they can find you and what really what the Canadian Military History Podcast is all about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before I do that, I just want to thank you for inviting me on to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Uh, this is my first venture. I've written in quite a few times. Some of my letters have been read on the air, but to get an opportunity to record with the Fire and Water Podcast Network is uh, something that I've been looking forward to to for a while. Uh, so thank you for this, uh, getting my foot in the door. Hopefully some more offers will come my way. <laughs> I do enjoy this. I enjoy listening, but I also like to talk. So my show is the Canadian Military History Podcast, and I'm the host, producer, and basically the one-man show of, of the podcast. The show interviews members of the Canadian Forces, past, present, from private to general, and everything in between. So the show is based on four questions. Why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? What is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Who is your greatest influence or the most memorable character that you've met in your service? And finally, what is the greatest challenge that you've had to overcome? Something that I've really been surprised with is how each guest of the show interprets those four questions so differently. And they are the same questions that I ask to every listener. So if you're looking for some variety, if you're looking to hear stories of members of the Canadian Armed Forces, this is really where those stories come to life. And one of the things that is as a result of the Canadian Military History Podcast is that I've had three of my guests pass away since I started, and their stories are now preserved for all time. One of those guests is my very good friend, Scott Patterson, who died suddenly, and I got to record his story a few months before his passing. And then somebody who is just a member of his family was just listening or looking online for something about Scott, and they happened to stumble across my episode, and they listened to it shortly after he died. And it provided the, the family member a lot of comfort to be able to listen to Scotty's voice at any time just by clicking on the show. So that's a very much unanticipated result of the Canadian Military History Podcast that I'm very proud of. Now, currently at this time, I don't have any episodes in production, simply because the course that I'm taking, the Army Operations course, is demanding a lot of my free time. As a matter of fact, you and I are recording first thing in the morning uh, so that I can get to work on my course. And I do have to maintain a full-time job outside of the military as well. 
So taking into the fact that my course takes up a lot of my spare time, my full-time job takes a lot of my, my normal time, uh, I don't have a lot of time to record episodes right now. However, the episode, uh, the program is not dead at this point in time. I will be continuing the podcast, but there are 53 episodes for people to enjoy while you're waiting. So I have Commander of the Canadian Army on the show. I have World War II veterans on the show. I have young privates that have just completed their initial basic training on the show. So it really does have a good picture. I don't have a lot of Air Force. I don't have a lot of Navy. And maybe that's just because of the circles that I keep. But nevertheless, the show is not dead, even though there are no current episodes in production. But once I have some free time again after my Army operations course, I will be able to produce more shows for people to listen to. And if you're listening, you're hearing about it for the first time, then it's all new to you. Exactly. Yeah, I've listened to a few. I listened to a few episodes, and this is a very much a branch of or a way to look at history that I appreciate. Um, on a personal note, I went to Newfoundland last year. And um, there was an exhibit at the Four Rooms Museum about the Newfoundland. I mean, this was World War II, so before uh, Newfoundland was uh, officially a part of Canada, so it was, you know, it was like a British territory. And they sent a regiment over there to fight in World War II. And the whole exhibit was very much told from the soldiers' point of view. A lot of anecdotes, a lot of, uh, and not just them, but the people they left behind. And so it, it was very, very much based on uh, testimonials rather yes. than the, perhaps the, what we might call the dry facts of history. So, uh, and is so moving to read those, those words and those, those old letters and, uh, and hear the comments read or, you know, it was a very multimedia kind of experience. So I love that. And uh, your show basically creates a, a living memory of military life and the conflicts Canada has been involved with. And so uh, I very much recommend it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Especially since, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people, uh, the reason we go to museums is because I'm friends with tons of people that studied history or history majors. Uh, so I, I'm saying this to them as much as to anyone. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Thanks again, Mike. I mean, your time is obviously precious, as you've said. <laughs> so spending this yeah. uh, these these hour and uh, some change with us uh, is very much appreciated. I know you've yeah. got to take a shuttle back to your <laughs> real life. Yeah. I'm going to stay behind and do some subspace transmissions uh, after this short break. Yeah, I'm not a fan of beaming. <laughs> Welcome to the world of tomorrow! The Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series, five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. always have to say it that way haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship the canadian military history podcast is dedicated to preserving the stories of canada's military veterans past in 39 uh, when the war started present so i'm extremely proud to have the opportunity to serve as the canadian forces chief foreign officer and eventually future i hope the biggest challenge is still ahead of me in their own words 
Unlike other history projects, which tend to focus on dates, places, battles, and numbers, this podcast asks four key questions that reveal who this person is and what made them into the soldier, sailor, or air crew that they are today. When you do finally come back to the unit, it was like you never left. Join me, Mike Lacroix, each week as I speak to military veterans of all eras, from private to general and everyone in between. I think it's been great. I think these are the narratives that need to be told. About why they joined the Canadian Armed Forces. First off, my dad was in the military. As a kid growing up, I watched what he did, the lifestyle he had, and I thought, this is okay, this is something that I think I could do. What their greatest memory or achievement was. My greatest achievement, I think, was leading my sniper team in battle. Who was their greatest influence or the most memorable character they've encountered? Very experienced, very professional, very smart, all-around great guy, and always seemed to have just the right kind of advice for you. And what was the greatest challenge they've had to overcome? The next morning I was sleeping, and this staff sergeant, his name was Miko, he come by and he says, uh, wake up, kid, he says, uh, your brother was killed last night, we're going to bury him. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or visit www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca for the RSS feed link or to stream. I remember at one point, uh, one RCR warrant officer showing us how to shave in a mud puddle. And it was just, your sleeping bag got wet? I guess that's too bad, eh? Comments and updates are also posted on the Canadian Military History Podcast Facebook page. It was just the most physically and mentally challenging course of my life. I can be contacted at Mike Lacroix, cmhp at gmail.com for any comments, suggestions, or feedback. The Canadian Military History Podcast is about the people behind the uniform and not the politics behind conflict. In Star Trek news, let me start with a couple of self-serving announcements. Uh, by the time you hear this, Star Trek Discovery will be at the eight-episode mark, and I've started writing reviews again. They can be found at Ciscoid's blog of geekery at ciscoid.blogspot.com. And in time to celebrate 30 years of Star Trek The Next Generation, ATB Publishing's new collection of essays about the show is out and available on their website. It's called Outside In Makes It So, and your humble host has a piece in there about Ro Laren's earring. I suppose the big news is that Discovery has been renewed for a second season. CBS considers it a hit and is happy with how it boosted subscriptions to their streaming service, CBS All Access. Subscribers themselves have been less enthusiastic, as many have reported buffering and syncing problems, severe ones, with the service starting a couple of weeks ago. CBS says 5% of subscribers have been affected. Some sources suggest as many as three quarters of all subscribers. The fault apparently lies with one of their delivery partners and may have yet to be fully resolved. And on a sadder note, Anton Yelchin, the actor who brought Chekhov to life in the J.J. Abrams films and who died tragically last year in a dreadful accident, age 27, has been honored with a statue in Hollywood's Garden of Legends. The statue was unveiled at a special service last month in the company of some of his Star Trek co-stars. Last week, my local Cineplex showed a trailer for his very last film, We Don't Belong Here, which is odd because it was released direct-to-DVD last spring to absolutely no fanfare. And now your feedback on episode 14, in which the irredeemable Shag and I tackled Peter David's Star Trek New Frontier series of books. Let's start with Santarin. He says, well, from interviews, I suspect Marina Sirtis was happy that Captain Jellico was on TNG. He sends us this clip. So then we 
got to season six, I think, and there was the episode, I think it was, was it Chain of Command? I can't remember. Where we were yes. trying out the new captain, yes. Captain Jellicoe, just in case Patrick wanted too much money <laughs> the next season. We were like, you know, auditioning other captains. And he said to Troy, go put on a uniform. And lo and behold, there was one in her closet. <laughs> so I put it on, and by then I was skinny. And the directors and the, all the producers were like, she looks good in that. Why hasn't she been wearing that for the last five, six years and saved us thousands of dollars in costumes? So I started to wear my spacesuit. I was thrilled to finally be in a spacesuit. First of all, my pits. Because I had a rank, you know, and then it was very flattering, actually. It looked really good. The new one looked really good. Suddenly, I was like, smart again because my cleavage had gone. My grey matter came flooding back. I was on a weight team. I had a medical tricorder. And unlike Beverly, I seemed to know what was wrong with people. The costuming discomfort on the TNG is in fact well chronicled. Davides Gutierrez was unhappy with Shag calling his voice squeaky, and he says, So you can tell that Minbari-looking fool that, yes, I'm aware of the annoying qualities of my voice. It's my voice. I hear it all the time. Guess those Matthews good looks skipped a generation. From a $6 million man Kirk to slightly taller and less yellow Minion. In all seriousness, I liked but not loved the New Frontier books, but my problems with them are exactly the same with, uh, as my problems with Peter David's writing style. Sometimes I think he tries a bit too hard to hit the punchline with which he's enamored. But overall, there's some great yarns and I like Calhoun quite a bit. Oddly, I felt the books got a bit too cosmic for me. Not sure if that makes sense or not, but I prefer Q-level strength entities to be used sparingly. Then on to Rob Kelly, who says, slightly off-topic, but the only Trek books I ever read were the ones where Kirk comes back to life post-generations. I was so mad about how badly they screwed that up that I was desperate for an in-canon follow-up that undid what I saw in that movie. I don't remember the books being that great, but I was happy they undid the movie. So, is Kirk still alive, then, in Trek continuity? Uh, to which Iced D answered, If you count the novels, Kirk is indeed still alive, though he hasn't done any adventuring after the events of the Captain's Glory novel, which takes place about two years after Star Trek Nemesis. Mark Baker Wright chimes in to say, It is a crime against good sense to abandon the pocket verse on the basis of only having read Shatner's stuff. Whatever your feelings about generations. In any event, the Shatnerverse is not considered canonical, not even for other pocket novels. Kirk's dead, deal with it. So Shag comes to the rescue, says pretty harsh there, Mark. One of the beauties of Trek's fandom is all the different versions and that fans simply pick and choose which they consider their own personal canon, as opposed to Star Wars fans who want every single piece to fit into a single canon. And really, I don't think Rob actually abandoned the pocket verse. It just, he only tasted that little slice of it. So I'd agree with Shag on that last one, since the shows and movies makers have never guaranteed that they wouldn't contradict novels, and indeed often did. None of them can be called canon. Uh, they're meant to be enjoyed in spite of that. Someone might even prefer the first meeting with the Vulcans to be uh, what happens in Strangers from the Sky uh, instead of Star Trek First Contact or Wish Q in Law happened or, yes, hope for a different death for Kirk. Uh, it's not canon, but one can enjoy those stories anyway. 
Brian Blake says that this has been his favorite series of novels in Tregdom for a long time, New Frontier. Really glad someone has covered it. Great podcast. Why is no one turning this into TV or movies? Well, I think we kind of addressed that. Chris Franklin says, fun show, guys. I remember when these books came out, and it was quite a big deal to have a new ship that wasn't the Enterprise and not based on a television series. I've never read any of these, but the audiobook read by Joe Morton, sounds intriguing. Paul and Casey says the CD-ROM featuring the first 16 New Frontier stories are in the hardcover of Stone and Anvil. So if you're looking for those electronic versions, that's where you find them. Brian Linton says, I'm not a big reader of Star Trek novels, but I did read and enjoy the first four New Frontier novels around the time they first came out. I primarily picked them because I recognize Peter David from his run on Aquaman and generally like his world building. I never read any of the later NF novels because I didn't realize or simply forgot that the series continued on beyond those first novels. Now I'll have to see if I can find the others. And this has been a a recurring sentiment from after the episode. Uh, Jack Bond says, did nobody else think the cover painting of Mackenzie was Alec Baldwin from The Hunt for Red October? Was it just me then? I don't think you're wrong. Tim Price says uh, novels are not really uh, his thing, being more a comics TV guy. But he says, I'm a huge Peter David fan, starting with his entire run on Incredible Hulk and everything I can find through the present day. That led me to buy any novels he writes as well. And I'm not as rabid about it, but I'll buy one if I come across it browsing in a store. So his are most of the Star Trek novels I've read. So with that, I had to give Star Trek New Frontier a try and loved it. Granted, I... Only own 13 of the books, so it's not the complete series, but I love NF for all the reasons Siskoid and Shag gave, and David's writing style works so well for short attention span readers like myself. I also got the chapters featuring NF in crossover novels, Captain's Chair, like Shag mentioned. Lord, I never get tired of reading that one. Double Helix and Gateways. The fact that NF was included in these crossovers alongside TOS, TNG, DS9, and Voyager was astounding to me. We take that as a given in the comics' mega crossover events, but that was really special for Trek novels. Really great point. New Frontier was really put you know, side by side with the actual TV series in those ranges of uh, crossover novels. Then we have Brian Hughes says, wow, this is a great episode. I don't recall you mentioning it, but Peter David wrote an early TNG novel called A Rock and a Hard Place, where Riker was temporarily replaced with a cowboy type character as XO. This character is what inspired Calhoun. It is a fun book with bits of pathos, a great read. I agree. This is one of the early ones that I'd read as well. I didn't. I, I read it so long ago that I never put two and two together that he that that character was a proto Calhoun. But you're totally right, as far as the personality goes. Certainly, uh, Max Travers says this podcast has made me want to read the series, or rather, listen to it in audio format. However, the only audiobooks I can find for the series are severely abridged books one through four. Totally only 4.5 hours added up, etc. Does anyone know where I can find some unabridged audio version of the series? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Okay, this was all at fireandwaterpodcast.com. So on Facebook, some likes and shares and also a few comments like Aaron Henley, who mentions an Avengers reference that was in the NF books. Tries to shame us for not mentioning it. Just There's so much to talk about. Uh, Abel Padilla, uh, Andrew Leyland says, Excellent series, quite like Discovery in a few ways, and thanks for introducing me to Literary Trek, a Star Trek book podcast I didn't know existed. More likes and shares from Anthony Madge, Brian Ng, Chris Franklin, Christopher Luke, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, Corey Hodgson, Corey Drew says, I was an early adopter of these books. Love, love, love them. I worked at a bookstore at the time, and when I saw it in the box, I was like, what the F? is this big finish should make a deal with paramount for these guys 
Interesting idea. Dale Russell, Dan Gunther, David Is Gutierrez, David Foster, D. Bash, Derek William Crabb, Eric Lavoie. Erica White says, when I was in high school, I would reread these books all the time. Super looking forward to this episode. So I hope you liked it. Uh, then Gene Hendricks says, I wonder if Irex and Mares were time lost after their appearance in the comics. I checked for Gene. Uh, yes, the last comic book appearances take place in 2286. And Erex was present at Kirk's funeral in The Fire and the Rose in 2293. And they enter the wormhole in 2305, only to pop out in 2376. More likes and shares. Greg Rozier, Jack Dower, Jared West, Jason Mulliken, Jason Pope, Jennifer Lee Breyer, who says, I love the first four books of the series, but I didn't care for the next two or three. However, this podcast has me considering going back to the series. John Grenier, John Tipton, John M. Wilson, Jonathan Hames, who asks if we'll do a show on Diane Duane's books. Uh, I'll say this, I've read a fair few, so I'm game. Though, like everything, it's a matter of time and balancing topics over the course of the year and finding a good guest to talk about them. Keith Mason says the New Frontier books were amazing. Mark Adams, Max Romero says, uh, I have a problem with buying way too many Star Trek novels. This is not going to help. Michael Bailey says, didn't the breaking up of the first New Frontier novels have something to do with the success of Stephen King releasing The Green Mile in smaller chunks? To which Chuck Rodriguez answered that, if memory serves, uh, I think that was a catalyst for several authors to release their novels in a serialized format. It seems to have been all the rage at the time. Then uh, thank you, Michael Scudurlo, Michael Wagner, Mike Zumo, Rob Kelly, Roger Pree, Brian Prinky, Scott Rowland, Sean N. Curry, who asks, did they ever print their recent ebooks as a paperback? Um, I don't think so. Shag Matthews, Terence Castonghi, Thomas Fovey, Van Zee, and Zumi Kanori. On Google+, Plus, we got plus by Edward Crosby and The Hammer Strikes. On Twitter, retweets and favorites from Bruce Gordon, Captain Kirk's Dildo. Hey. Uh, Chris, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee Comics, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Craig Oxbow, Dino Mutt, Earth to Chris, Firestorm Fan, Irredeemable Shag, one and the same, Isolated Tops, Martin Gray, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Radagast, Rob Kelly Creative of Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, Hostess Ads, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Comics, Rael Williams, Ted Kilvington, Tim Price, Trekonomics, Trickbot, We Welcome Our Robot Overlords, and Willie Yarbrough. Let me end by thanking my guest, Infantry Captain Mike Lacroix, for his participation today once again and for his service over the past two decades. And let me wish a good Remembrance Day, since it's right around the corner, to him and all our serving men and women, both past and present, and their families. As usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, on the Fire and Water Facebook page, or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs> <laughs>